you can't just call up people anymore and expect them to pick up. You, when I see a foreign number on my phone <laughs> from exactly. Arkansas, Alaska, even Indiana, I'm like, nah, <laughs> I don't know them. Welcome to Young, Black, and Political. I am uh, so happy. Brandon Pope here. We got Jordan Baker uh, on as well. Uh, Chris and Steph taking a break today as they are working uh, in this pivotal time for elections. And I'm, I'm just so, uh, I want to say thank you to everyone that's been listening. So humbled by the support. Um, you know, our goal coming into this was to educate people and to be um, you know, kind of break through the noise, right? And help uh, get our people ready for this pivotal election, both nationally and in their own state. And so just uh, happy that people are listening and uh, have taken to the podcast. Uh, Jordan, how you feeling, man? I'm good. I am going a little bit off topic. As a fantasy football owner who <laughs> had Saquon Barkley, and uh, Raheem <laughs> Mostert as like his first couple picks. I'm not oh, man. <laughs> so high, but um, Bruh, Saquon, we got so many injuries this year. To make matters worse, I'm thinking that I made the mistake of picking up Deion Lewis as his like replacement, like temporarily, because I don't know how that uh, Giants O line is going to do. Um, but fantasy football gods have not been helping me. <laughs> so. <laughs> Fantasy football struggles, definitely a thing, um, you know, mm-hmm. kind of while we still have football going on in this pandemic and all that. Um, let's jump into the pod. Uh, we have uh, lots of polling. This is a time where polling is huge. You're going to hear uh, polls have Trump leading, polls have Biden leading, um, some state by state, some national. In fact, uh, a lot of polls you see out there have Joe Biden um making lots of inroads in donald trump's base especially with women uh but when it comes to polling people raise their eyebrows they they have some skepticism right because we saw what happened in 2016 where polls had hillary clinton up big numbers sometimes double digits and she lost the election um so is polling still reliable can we still count on it how do you know a good poll from a bad one? Well, I caught up with Caden Claus and an expert here in Chicago. Um, he is the co-founder of True Public, trying to innovate the way polling is done. And we dug into the topic. Take a listen. So, you know, I wanted to, to talk to you a little bit about polling. I feel like there's a lot of misconceptions um, about polling, especially during election season, um, people don't really understand what polling is. So can you just kind of explain in general uh, what that process of polling is? Are we just grabbing random people and asking their opinion? Yeah, it's it's a great question. Uh, Really, what what you try to do when you do a poll is obviously, if we could ask every American what they were going to do, we would have a perfectly accurate poll. But that's obviously impossible. So what polling is trying to do is create a sample 
of a larger population. So typically when you see or hear about polls, you're gonna hear about US presidential polls, which we're seeing coming out every single day. And these polls usually have what's called a sample of people between 300 on the very low end, all the way up to some of them might even have 5,000 on the high end, but most are around 500 to 1,000 people. So what you're doing there is you're trying to randomly find 500 to 1,000 people across America and they need to match the criteria you're looking for. So if we're talking the 2020 presidential election, we wanna to talk to, we wanna randomly find people who are likely to vote, talk to them, get them to answer honestly. And the other key thing with polling is you wanna make sure that you're reducing bias. So you don't wanna ask, you know, you don't wanna ask the question in different ways. You know, and oftentimes if it's a telephone poll, they'll train people to be very neutral. Because even the way you ask a question or the way you say something might lean one person more towards Biden or towards Trump. So get a random group of around 500 to 1,000 people, ask them the same questions. And, and real quick, another interesting point, though, that random group is really hard to reach. I mean, before, and this is why we're starting to see some of the challenges with polling, before, everyone used to have a landline telephone. You know, back in the 1960s and 70s. <laughs> yeah. And if someone called, you know, Someone would get up from the dinner table, answer the phone, and they're like, hey, who are you going to vote for? And, and they'd answer. Right. The problem today is there's cell phones now, which are a little harder to reach at times. And certainly with the younger set of Americans, I know I'm not answering the phone from numbers I don't recognize. So that makes it tough. So now we're having to shift to not only telephone polls, but really, you know, and that's what True Public does. We're trying to find other ways to reach people for their opinions that are maybe a little more organic and more, you know, natural for them. Yeah, because that methodology, it changes over time as our forms of communication change over time. So with True Public, uh, what kind of other lanes are you looking at? Are you looking at more online, social media? What kind of ways are you trying to adjust? Yeah, and you know, one of the cool things about polling and, and finding a good sample of people is, in, in our case, you know, what we're really good at is reaching young Americans. And we've done that by creating a mobile product and a web product that's really it taps into the things they care about, you know, dating, uh, their political views, entertainment, sports, and we're able to get a large random group of people to join a platform. And then while they're on True Public, we randomly distribute these questions to people and we make sure it's weighted. And I'd like to talk to about another thing with the, with the polling. Weighting is a really important piece here because if you poll a thousand people, and 80% of them were Democrats, that would obviously skew the poll towards the Democrats or vice right. versa, the Republicans. So what is often done, or even if, you know, 80% were men or 80% were women, what you want to do is you also want to make sure you've weighted the sample, meaning you make sure you have enough people who are men, who are women, different ethnicities, different, different political backgrounds, and that helps you find more of a good balance. So at True Public, we bring in a lot of young people, 16 to 35, and then we weight the sample to get to a really good and accurate uh, data piece. But, but here's what's interesting. When we're talking about uh, on our view on the election, we're gonna release um, our predictions for the 2020 election uh, sometime in the second half of October, which we're really excited about. Yeah. Uh, which will be fun. But we're partnering with other polling firms that maybe are a little bit better at getting those, whereas they're really good at getting those older users in the 60s, 70s, 80s. We're really good at getting young people and we can really bring those two sets together and work on that data to create a snapshot of America that we think will be pretty accurate for where people are. That's pretty exciting. Kind of a, a, a forecast like 538 does in a sense, right? Yeah, and, and 538 is a great 
a great point to bring up because what 538 has done so well is they're a pole of poles in a way. And, and, and it sounds kind of funny, but what they're doing is they bring in all the sources from an ABC News, an NBC News, a SurveyMonkey, all these different uh, Gallup. They bring them all to a central location and they create an average of all the polls. And, and they're thinking, I think they're thinking it's pretty smart, which is any one pollster could be wrong. Certainly in 2016, we saw a lot of pollsters were wrong predicting right. a Hillary Clinton victory. In 2012, there were some pollsters that were wrong. They, they, were, they predicted that Romney would be a lot closer than he actually was. There's been errors on both sides. But by bringing together, Brandon, a bunch of these polls in one place, you can kind of average them out. And the hope behind that is, okay, someone's you know, too high, someone's too low. But if you average them, we're going to get pretty close to the, to the right number. So in that sense, polling still can be reliable even though the big, you know, everyone points at 2016, the big miss there, but there's still power in polling. I think there is. I think this election is going to be very telling. I mean, I think that everyone in the industry is collectively holding their breath. I think, it, you know, it's certainly at True Public, we're very much a new entrant and we, we feel like we can be the future of polling by making it more organic and fun for people. And that way we get more people to participate because the truth is, most people don't want to answer. Most people are busy. Most people don't want to answer a phone call in the middle of the day, answer an email survey, get paid a little bit of money to do a survey. Most people don't want to do that today. But people do care about the news. And people do care about where their opinions fit. We think that that is going to be one of the best, best ways to pull people going forward. But for right now, I mean, we're in a weird time. The 2016 election, really, the polls were pretty close to accurate nationally. They were, you know, they're pretty good. Hillary's going to have more votes than Trump. That was right. The problem was what's going on in Wisconsin? What's going on in Michigan? What's going on in Pennsylvania? Those were way off. I mean, they thought Hillary was going to win by eight points in Wisconsin. That was the general consensus. She ends up losing Wisconsin, didn't even go there for the last few months of that election. So that kind of, I think, really, if we're talking about polls here, we should talk about the importance of polling. There is a real argument to be made that if the polls had been more accurate, in 2016, Hillary Clinton would be our president. Now, why is that? If the Clinton campaign had known, let's say, last August or September, that they were actually losing Wisconsin, as opposed to winning it in a runaway, they would have put more of their resources into Wisconsin. They would maybe had more campaign events there. And we can't for sure ever know if that would have changed the outcome of the election. But I think from a strategic standpoint, these both campaigns, they're looking at polls and they're looking at the the map and they're saying, okay, can we win? You know, Hillary's looking at Alabama and saying, okay, I'm not, or, you know, Biden's looking at Alabama and saying, I can't win Alabama. Right. And Trump's looking at California and he's like, I can't win in, in California. But the polls are helping the campaigns understand, okay, uh, Michigan's close. Okay. We gotta, we gotta fight for Michigan. Uh, you know, right now the Trump campaign is probably looking at places like Arizona and Texas that are traditionally red States that are becoming more blue. Right. Uh, as they become, you know, there, there's a Hispanic population that's growing there. And I think, you know, we'll see in this election, if the polls are wrong again, I think there's going to be a reckoning. I think already so many people don't trust the polling data. And if they're wrong again, then I think we're going to have to look around and say, what's next? What's the solution going forward? And, and hopefully True Public can be a part of, of that conversation. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting point you bring up when, with how polls factor into campaign strategy. Um, a new poll came out today showing Biden tied with uh, Donald Trump in Georgia. So, you know, things like that, you figure when well, now the Biden campaign is going to be 
are we focusing a little bit more on uh, on Georgia? The other thing is these campaigns have their own pollsters, right? And they have their own uh, in, internal polling units. Um, and polls can be partisan. So how does one spot a good poll from a bad one? How do you make sure the poll you're looking at is reliable? Yeah, and that's never been, it's never been harder. Um, and, and the reason for that is it, much of the world is becoming very partisan. And I, I think what you have to look at is a track record. I think 538 is the best place to know the reliability of polls. I think they do a really good job in a bipartisan way saying which polls have a history of accuracy and which don't. The, the problem, I think, ultimately is um, many high quality pollsters were wrong in 16. Does that mean they're going to be wrong again? We don't know. There could be, there could be, there's so many factors that are coming into a poll, not just who are you asking, but also who's willing to answer. You know, a big thing with, you know, the election last time was, was it the shy Trump voter? It was not telling pollsters they liked Trump because they didn't want to be perceived negatively by the person on the phone. Or was it the fact that there was just a much larger turnout for Trump that wasn't expected and actually the polls weren't that off? That's, that's a big question. And then on the internal polling, you know, that's interesting because like the reason there's Republican pollsters and Democrat pollsters is if I'm running a Republican campaign or a Democrat campaign, I want people on my side telling me the inside information. In fact, Bill Clinton was the one who most famously used this. He had a, you know, he had a pollster named Dick Morris who worked very closely with him and they would do a ton of internal polling and always looking at what's the real situation. And the reason you want to keep that internal is some of the numbers might not be favorable. You might find out things that you don't really want, you know, everyone to know about and you can, you can solve those internally with someone you trust, i.e. a Democrat pollster for the Democrats and a Republican pollster for the Republicans. That makes sense. Kevin Clausen, True Public, you really uh, uh, gave us some things to chew on here. Really fascinating world. And I think the future uh, is going to be interesting to watch with polling. And I can't wait to see how True Public factors into that, too. It's going to be a fun couple months. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. Thanks a lot, man. Right on. So uh, this conversation on polling was really fascinating for me. Um, you know, because polls do factor in, but it's this idea that the future of polling is at stake in this election. How polling is done uh, is changing because you made a great point. You can't just call up people anymore and expect them to pick up. You, when I see a foreign number on my phone <laughs> from exactly. Arkansas, Alaska, even Indiana, I'm like, nah, <laughs> I don't know them. So true. It's just, it's tough to get consensus. What'd you think of the interview? Yeah, I'm right there with you. Like I am more, I'm wondering if there is a way polls can be gathered um, more through social media and maybe through texting. Because like you, like if I get an unknown call, like I'm not picking up, you know, like I, I don't care. I get too many robocalls as is. Um, but I think I'm more inclined to answer a text message from somebody that I don't know about something like maybe answering a question you know like if they say something crazy i may you know not just me but people now are known for taking screenshots of like getting messages from people that they don't know um and continue those conversations so i'm wondering if you know maybe polling or gathering polling you know maybe it can become more of a, a text message based thing or a, a dm thing where um 
instead of those calls, maybe they transition more into that, that type of messaging aspect where they gather pollen. Um, but I, I get the, um, I get his point in saying how hard it is to kind of reach everybody and reach the demographic because everybody is not texting, you know? And so um, hopefully um, as uh, the elections go on, we can, you know, create a process that's more suited to all generations when trying to gather these polls. Yeah, something else I thought that was really interesting, he mentioned, you know, why did 2016 polls fail so badly? You know, perhaps it was because there, are, there is this unaccounted Trump voter, ashamed Trump voter. Uh, politics is so divisive nowadays, people may not want to express what they're really feeling or where they're citing politically, and it's unaccounted for um, polls. Polls can't account for that. Um, and I, I wonder when we look at 2020 polls where Biden actually holds in some regards bigger leads than Clinton did mm -hmm. and is making inroads in states like Georgia. I saw a poll he's tied in Georgia, um, yeah. Texas. You know, how reliable is that really? Um, and how that impacts the campaigns themselves too. Because yeah, like you said, you put resources where you think you're going to be competitive, and those polls are a big uh, result of that. Yeah, it's, I also think it's hard for uh, a Joe Biden now to say to look at like a Georgia and say like, oh, we're tied. Let me go and hold like events there. Um, so it may be more of um, oh, we're tied in Georgia. Let me throw some ad dollars to TV um, ads or social campaign toward that area since we can't physically go there and embrace that audience. So um, that's where fundraising comes into um, play. Because since he can't make a public trip to show up there, he may need to send more of his fundraising dollars to show ads in that particular area. And hopefully he doesn't, you know, repeat the same mistake that Hillary Clinton made when she saw that she was winning in Wisconsin and did not, you know, visit Wisconsin at all. And maybe she didn't even throw any more fundraising dollars uh, towards ads in Wisconsin that she could have. And so hopefully following whatever polls that he trusts, um, they can spend their money and campaign during this COVID uh, time in a correct way um, that will help him during this election. Yeah, do you think we're seeing more of a focus from the Biden campaign? Um, in Wisconsin, Michigan, those battleground states um, that the Clinton campaign may have not uh, touched upon uh, as much as they should have uh, the last time. So we'll see uh, how that impacts the election. Speaking of polling, um, we got some polling about a really hot button issue right now, and that's the Supreme Court decision um, when it comes to who fills that seat um, that is now vacant because of the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. A new uh, Washington Post ABC News poll says that a majority of Americans think the next president should select the RBG successor, not the current one. 54% of Americans, according to this polling, uh, 1,008 U.S. adults selected randomly uh, believe that the next president should select uh, the uh, next Supreme Court justice. Meanwhile, President Trump already reportedly has his pick, and that is Notre Dame professor Amy Coney Barrett uh, to fill Ginsburg's seat. Uh, he's going to try to push that through before Election Day, um, something we're definitely watching. Jordan, what was your 
uh, reaction to all of this going on with the Supreme Court and this discussion around filling that seat and when it should be filled? Well, <laughs> first, I think uh, a lot to react to. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this would never happen, but on some planet, Republicans should send Obama an apology for how they treated uh, Merrick Garland um, and stalling and saying publicly that um, they would not, you know, um, they wanted the American people to decide uh, who the next Supreme uh, Court Justice should be, which is why they did not, um, you know, back in 2016 when Obama um, picked him to fill a justice seat, uh, they did not um, take a vote on him and they stalled. However, you know, fast forward to 2020 and the death of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, we have now those same Republicans, Lindsey Graham, um, flip-flopping and saying they are going to back uh, the president in picking the, uh, and like in improving their, his uh, nominee um, since the justice seat uh, came open at the end of an election year. Um, and kind of just basically going back against their word and saying like the American people should choose, but now it's the president's choice. Um, and, you know, uh, Amy Coney Barrett, she's a federal judge. She was a, a previously a professor, I think at Notre Dame. Um, she was a favorite. I think she was also on Trump's like shortlist when he uh, picked uh, Brett Kavanaugh back in 2018. Um, but uh, she had some controversy when she was um, being appointed as a federal judge because of how religious she is. And I assume that that religion um, factor is probably going to cause another controversy again. Um, you know, everybody as Democrats, I believe they're worried that the Supreme Court is going to overturn Roe versus Wade. Uh, and if it's, you know, full uh, Republican court, essentially. And I think that's why a lot of Democrats are worried about Trump's new pick or even just having a new pick. Um, yeah, and, there's, there's a lot of concern there about, you know, how this uh, slants the court for the future. And that's why there's such, you know, um, you know, so much pressure going on when it comes to this. Um, so much anger going on from the left, so much uh, joy from the right as well. I think it's interesting when you look at Trump's picks, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch so far, um, people fear they would be, you know, too politically uh, attuned to the president, but we've actually seen Gorsuch and Kavanaugh both go against President Trump. So, True. you know, who knows? Amy Coney Barrett could get in there. I feel like when you step into the role of Supreme Court Justice as a lifetime appointment, it does something to you, right? Um, and uh, it's going to be interesting to see how she actually handles uh, doing the job if she is in the job. We do know she, she sided with Trump on uh, immigration. Uh, she aligns with him when it comes to his opposition to Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. Um, so if those ever get relitigated, uh, then She's right there, sort of on his side from what we've seen with past decisions. That doesn't necessarily indicate what she'll do in the future, but it is, uh, it can be alarming for those on the left, I'm sure, 
if they have fears about, like you said, Roe versus Wade, health care and immigration. Yeah, she said that she, and she spoke on Roe. She said that um, it's been decided on and it's been like over 40 years. And she, I guess she kind of hinted that she would not be um, for overturning it. But that doesn't mean that she wouldn't make like more decisions that could potentially hinder it mm. um, going on in the future. And so yeah. could weaken it. Yeah. So I don't know what the Democrats can do, but I think with the new Supreme Court nominee, I think what uh, that should tell voters and for Democrats is what we should focus on, especially during this election, is um, we should make this upcoming vote about the senators that said that they weren't you know, going to vote. But then now that they confirm this new um, uh, Supreme Court nominee, we should definitely try to um, vote in a Senate that can potentially avoid this you know, problem happening in the future. Um, so definitely, I don't know what you can do, but probably targeting uh, a senator like um, Lindsey Graham, who's currently in a statistical tie in South Carolina, um, you know, and saying like, if he's not going to be one to like, if we can't trust his word and he's, he's gonna flip flop and basically change um, the government you know, on a whim, um, we should definitely focus on who is in our Senate um, and look towards like this election saying like, we need to address Lindsey Graham. And maybe that means we support Jamie Harrison and support his campaign. Um, the Lincoln Project, I think they put out a, a video uh, not too long ago about an ad about how Lindsey Graham was on Fox News um, complaining about how he's losing his fundraising race. I saw that. You said he's getting killed in the fundraising, yeah. Uh -huh. And they, they, it was funny because that ad, they actually uh, framed it um, like, uh, it's those, um, those uh, animal commercials where, uh, you know, like the troubled animals and you need to send money to help an uh, animal in need. They pose uh, Lindsey Graham as the, uh, as the uh, animal in this case, but, um, it's pretty funny. I'm doing a poor job of explaining it, but go watch it if you haven't seen it. Um, but back to what I was saying, I think it's important that we should really take account of how senators are reacting um, and their actions. And then, you know, if you don't really care much about Biden, but you do care about the Supreme Court and you do care about some of the decisions that they've made and you don't want um, some of the decisions to be overturned, um, definitely vote during this election and make sure your senator is somebody who has the same values that you have. Yeah, and the big reason why you need to vote too, it's more than just about president, it's about um, you know decisions that affect our communities, um, people who are, have elected office that hold power to make decisions when it comes to things like policing and uh, you know our communities, uh, investments in our community and things like that. I look at the Breonna Taylor case right now. I mean, uh, I'm still shaken by it, shaken by, uh, you know, the lack of, you know, accountability for the murder of Breonna Taylor. She was shot and killed, and no one has been held accountable for firing that shot that killed her, um, you know. But you look at who has been appointed there. That attorney general is in a, an elected position. So you have the power in these elections to choose 
who should make these pivotal decisions that impact our communities. Definitely. Um, you know, when I got the verdict or heard the verdict about Breonna Taylor, I, um, you know, I think I'm numb uh, like to those this, these uh, decisions um, because I keep, I used to keep expecting to, you know, get what I considered was justice, but then everything, you know, it's never what I want to hear. Um, and, you know, every time we, every, this happens, we all talk about how it's a tragedy and how we're hurt and we're not surprised. And then it's been in this case, you know, we, I think we can sometimes get caught up in like a debate for like, in this example, like when someone enters your house unannounced and you're black and you using your legally owned gun shooting self-defense like Kenneth Walker did, Breonna Taylor's boyfriend. Um, and the conversation there isn't, oh, well, that was a rifle gun owner defending himself. You know, the conversation is, well, he shouldn't have shot first and there wouldn't have been a problem mm. while the NRA remained silent. And I think we can kind of go back and forth between, you know, like that conversation of who's right. Um, and I think we can uh, get stuck in that uh, conversation. Sometimes, you know, when you're arguing with people that have differences in opinion, you know, it may be impossible to try to change their opinion. But I think we should start to spend time um, focusing on actionable items and ways that we can um, prevent future things like this happening to address um, um, like the injustices that we received. And so looking forward, I know that we need massive reform, but it's going to take small steps. And one small step that I think we can all take is try to get uh, Brianna's law um, passed. It was a law that was uh, co-authored by a couple of um, uh, councilwomen in um, Louisville, and it was passed, I think, three months after the Brianna Taylor incident on June 11th. And basically that law has like a couple of small details. One, it, it bans the use of no-knock warrants, which is what the police officers use to, um, you know, was the impetus to the whole situation. And then it also says um, when executing a search warrant, uh, upon arrival, police must physically knock on any entry door to the premises and must clearly and verbally announce that they are law enforcement and have a search warrant in a way that can be heard by any occupants. It requires officers to wait a minimum of 15 seconds or a reasonable amount of time for occupants to answer the door. And it requires officers to wear body cameras and activate them no later than five minutes prior to the warrant execution. And so, you know, these are all things that would have helped potentially prevent um, what happened to Breonna Taylor. Um, and if, you know, this was this vote in Louisville, when the board voted on it, it was voted unanimously. And so one thing that we can do now is to across the country, essentially, we can call your representatives and try to enact Brianna's law. Um, and I know this is one law and it's small, but once we get one law passed, we can potentially get more and we can build upon you know, this movement um, and steadily get, you know, America, hopefully, to, to change. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, on top of uh, getting America's, Americans to change, 
Barbara Sexton Smith, um, the councilwoman who co-authored the uh, uh, the Brianna's Law, uh, she was on TV and she gave a recent interview where she said something that was very profound. Um, she's a white woman who's Jewish, uh, but she said that she had learned three things about blackness. She said that you can be black in color, you can be black in culture, and you can be black in consciousness. Since she you know, is white and Jewish, she can't be black in color or culture due to how she was raised, but she said that she can be black in conscious, consciousness. She can learn, she can understand and respect uh, the history of the institutional racism of this country. And it's basically her job, you know, to be aware of the experience the black community faces on a daily basis. And if we can somehow, you know, it'd be a, a miracle, but if we can somehow get others to, you know, adopt the same mentality where they are aware of the black experience, I think that is the way that we can, you know, force America to change as a whole in doing things that, you know, kind of uh, educate people about the black experience, like, you know, the National Museum of African-American History and Culture or the New York Times' uh, 1619 project. Like those things uh, do that. And, you know, if you aren't aware of the black experience, you know, there are ways for you to learn about them, you know? And like she said, you can't be black in culture and can't be black in color, um, but you can, you know, take the responsibility and be black in consciousness and be aware of the things that your neighbors and your fellow Americans are going through. And it's the best way to put yourself in their shoes in order to understand their plights so that you can, you know, maybe vote or understand why they vote the way that they do. I'm with you, man. Uh, we, we change is something we're all looking for, at least, you know, here on this pod and as black people in this country. Um, and it, it should be something that these candidates for president um, should be challenged on, both of them. Uh, we have a debate coming up between Joe Biden and President Donald Trump, the first debate. Um, and it's safe to say it's going to be unlike any other we've had before. I think, I think that's very safe to say. <laughs> so uh, we're going to break it down with Sean Anderson and the strategies for what you can expect on debate. Well, here is Sean Anderson, principal at Kivit and national leader for the New Leaders Council. And Sean, we got a, uh, I mean, I can't believe we're getting close to the election. It's kind of like sped up on us here, right? November 3rd is fast approaching. That means debates are coming. Um, but debates, I don't know. I feel like I wonder what their significance actually is and if they are still relevant in today's political era. Uh, what do you think? Do the do debates still matter in the long run when it comes to uh, the, the race itself? You know, that is an interesting question. And I think, you know, over the past, you know, two, three or four presidential cycles, the um, the importance and impact of debates has been waning a bit. 
you know, there were a few key moments, you know, mostly, you know, I think they matter more in the primaries than they do the general. There were a few moments where, you know, Barack Obama's first debate performance wasn't that good. He had to sort of rebound uh, against Hillary Clinton and um, John Edwards and the rest. Um, of course, expectations were, were pretty much, you know, unknown to low for Donald Trump in his first debate, you know, in 2015, um, you know, Bernie Sanders, you know, versus Hillary Clinton. So I think the debates matter more in the primary than they do the general. However, um, I think we might, I think, you know, this year might be a little bit more important when it comes to debates than previous because the candidates are not even, I mean, besides Donald Trump, and we can get to what he's doing in a minute, putting his supporters at risk, but, you know, you're, you're not seeing large rallies and surrogate speeches and the usual grip and grin of campaigns. Uh, much of the campaigning is being done through digital ads and, you know, who can get into and influence the day's news cycle. So, a lot of it's being done on TV. People are going to be deciding who to vote for through their television screens and their phone screens. And so maybe the debate might be a little bit more important this time. I think people want to see um, both progressives and the very small universe of swing voters want to see if Joe Biden is able to sort of muster up and really pound Donald Trump where he needs to be, where he needs to feel some damage. Um, you know, so I think the expectations for Joe Biden are are pretty high. Um, but, you know, the, the debates also pose a big risk for Donald Trump if he is not able to really, um, you know, in that environment, do the usual spin that he does around COVID and masks and his response and the vaccine. Um, and, you know, whether or not mail-in voting is secure, things like that, if he's, you know, unable to really do the usual spin, I think people will see, you know, um, the lies that he tells. And, that, and it's up to Joe Biden to sort of methodically expose that throughout the whatever 90 minute performance. Yeah, you know, that spin is interesting and, and, and lies and things like that. Um, I think oftentimes candidates for all throughout debates throughout the history have told mistruths. There's been fact checks that are done live and moderators have waded through that, but we're in this age where it almost seems like people just go with their own alternative facts, their own facts that they believe in that aren't actually facts. Um, and when you give them actual data and numbers, um, there's some people that just kind of ignore it. So how does a moderator wade through that? Do you think that voters can wade through that? Do you think that we're in this age where we can actually kind of you know, put the blinders on and not let what we see in these in these tribal social media cultures and of misinformation get in the way? Yeah, I think the person or the people that have the toughest the toughest job that night are going to be the moderators. I don't remember if there are one, if there's one moderator or many, but that's going to be the that's that's going to be the toughest job. I think I think it's going to be um, uh, Chris Wallace of Fox News. Yeah. Um, Kristen, Kristen Welker, yeah, Kristen Welker from the NBC, um, and I think one other person, but you know, from they the, have the C-SPAN, yeah, yeah, from C-SPAN, they have the toughest job that night, um, you know, um, 
I think to successfully moderate a debate with Donald Trump, or really just any interview with Donald Trump, um, these journalists have to sort of unlearn or abandon the usual journalistic um, etiquette that they've been taught, sort of the guardrails that they try to stay within, because if they stay within those guardrails, um, Donald Trump will have the latitude to really uh, orchestrate his own his own version of reality. Whereas if they sort of um, get a you know get accustomed to employing more direct um, in the moment uh, fact checking, and he 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 lies so often, they have to really be armed with every single piece of uh, uh, of evidence that he is fabricating something or, or spinning the truth, et cetera. Um, if they're armed with that and they're able to actually sort of correct him in real time, then I think that's, you know, that's just the only way to moderate the debate. It, 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 it's going to, you know, I think they get concerned that um, that they will look unfair or that they're pounding on Trump. Um, but you know, the reason that Donald Trump has been able to not only continue to, you know, win election the first time and continue to spread these lies is because he understands it's a strategy that he and Jared Kushner have employed that, um, you know, the media, uh, they're not going to be able to like keep up with all of his lies and fact check him in real time. And so they'll, uh, they'll just repeat the lie to say it's a lie, but they're just echoing the Trump message in the first place. Mm -hmm. George Stephanopoulos did a really good job of sort of moderating the discussion with Trump the other day on his interview. So I would hope that the other moderators sort of look to that for cues on how to handle this debate coming up in a couple of weeks. Yeah, you know, it's a you're right. It's a tough job. I know some people criticize Stephanopoulos too. They feel like he didn't um, go hard enough, didn't interject enough with Trump, but he just throws yeah. so many things out there. That's, you got to think that's his strategy is to bulldoze his way through, right? Uh, to bulldoze his way, keep talking and power through any interruption. That's kind of how he, he approaches things. And a big reason why a lot of voters like him, he just kind of seen as a bulldozer. Um, so you have to find a, a way to get in there and say, actually, let's correct the record here or challenge him on something, even basic things. We saw an interview with Axios recently where uh, a, a reporter, you know, just gave basic follow-ups. Like, where? Where do you see that? Right. You know, and those are, those are important. It, has, it doesn't have to be a, a deep, insightful question. It just has to be a who, what, when, where, why, honestly. Yeah, that's where you get, you know, who says masks are a problem? The waiters. <laughs> right, right. And then, the, the, the you know, he kind of gets exposed there. Um, what defines a good performance for Joe Biden? Because I feel like there is this perception, I think a pretty accurate perception, that Joe Biden isn't always top of his game in these debate performances. In the primaries, he didn't do too hot. Yeah. So how, how do we define a good performance for him versus Trump? It, it's going to be tough. I mean, you, you, there are a couple things to, to grapple with. First, you know, Joe Biden has not been um, shy about, you know, um, acknowledging the um, the difficulties he has with public speaking that he's had his entire life. 
And, you know, during the convention, I, did, I think they did a really nice job of um, explaining that and, and showing how he as a person, just as a regular human being, um, has had to overcome that throughout his life. And to this day, as being, you know, a former vice president, you know, uses the no cards and whatnot that he needs to use. Um, I think that really helped people empathize with, um, you know, with, with that particular issue. Um, at the same time, though, there is, um, there is some tension within the Democratic Party on what is the correct posture for Joe Biden. Mm. If Donald Trump is the bulldozer, um, hothead, uh, inciting panic, despite his claims of not wanting to do that, um, is the proper foil for Joe Biden to be calm, cool, and collected, um, to be the person that people feel comfortable at ease with, kind of like that thing they were saying about Pete Buttigieg, where your blood pressure drops when you listen to him. Um, <laughs> should yeah. Joe Biden go for that same sort of persona? Alternatively, instead, should Joe Biden sort of speak with the same level of urgency and direness that um, that some progressives may want him to to, to have, uh, and really hound Trump, but with again with the same level of sort of bravado and bulldozer type tactics in the debate. That's a, that that is a tension point within the party of what is the best strategy, um, and I can't sit here and pretend to know. You know, mm. I think what would make me more comfortable as someone who is very afraid of what the next few months are going to look like for the country is the more dire urgent message from Joe Biden, but um, I am not, you know, I do not represent this, again, this universe of voters that are apparently still deciding who to vote for. So, you know, I, I think, you know, so far Joe Biden has, you know, shown that the way he's approaching things is the best way because all the things that Trump tries to throw at him just don't stick. Um, and so maybe they'll continue with that strategy and we'll see what it looks like. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's, it's a tough balance for Biden for sure. Cause you know, um, I've seen him from announcing his campaign to now try to figure out how to approach the messaging. Do you, you know, kind of stoop to Trump's level and resort to, you know, the, the, the back and forth, I'll beat you like a drum, bravado type of stuff that, you know, Trump is, is known for, you know, his base loves that. Um, but I don't think that works as much for the Democratic base to kind of roll their eyes at that. But like you said, those voters who claim to have not made a choice yet, that's who he's really trying to target there. So that's, that's going to be interesting to see how they go about that how debate prep goes and uh, how he's able to handle that bulldozing that Trump is sure to do. Cause it's, it's going to get, it's going to be interesting for sure. You know, another part of the debate is the vice presidential debate. That's the one everyone's kind of like is the main event. Kamala Harris versus Mike Pence, right? Uh, what are you expecting to see out of that? Yeah. You know, traditionally uh, the role of the VP candidate is to be the attack dog I suspect that Kamala Harris will take that to a level 10, 10 times as that. What's right? that Dragon Ball Z? Uh, the, uh, uh, that level 10 
Yes, it's over 10,000. <laughs> over 10,000, yeah. Um, and, you know, Trump and his campaign clearly think that as well. You saw Mike Pence doing the usual expectations game of, well, you know, she's a really good debater and she's a prosecutor and, you know, yada, yada, trying to like lower expectations uh, of himself. Um, yeah, I think that's going to be the main show. Um, you know, if I'm looking at the whole picture, you know, Joe Biden is at or above 50% in pretty much every single battleground state that he needs that, you know, that will get him to win, uh, perhaps even with some room to breathe. Um, if I were the Biden campaign, I would want to do what I can to preserve that. That's a, that's a very key indicator that he's above 50%, as in Trump can win all the undecided to left on the table and Joe Biden still wins that state. Um, I would do what I can to preserve that and then let Kamala Harris really um, go in and perhaps carry that more dire message and really spell out how Donald Trump has not just failed the country as a matter of policy, but he has undermined the entire constitutional republic and has caused mass death, mm. quite frankly. You know, it's interesting. I, I look at these two and I, you know, I think it's going to be interesting to look back at history. I feel like these are the two most impactful, impactful VP choices um, in modern times. Usually VP choice doesn't really matter when it comes to who's gonna vote for you, right? Um, but I feel like in 2016, Mike Pence, from everyone I talked to in Indiana and Michigan and Wisconsin, you know, they would reason and rationalize their vote for Trump with Mike Pence being on the ticket. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we're seeing similar things being heard for uh, people who are Joe Biden voters. You know, well, Kamala Harris is more progressive and she's the future, she's a woman of color. And so I'm seeing more people kind of have enthusiasm for her and not so much for Joe Biden. So I, it's, it's interesting having the two of them, you know, actual like, you know, uh, competent politicians, competent speakers, go head to head. It's gonna be a battle for sure. Um, and I, I do want to see how aggressive she is toward Mike Pence um, and his own record uh, when it comes to his time as governor and the Trump administration. That's going to be something to watch for sure. Yeah, it's going to, it's going to be fun. I, I'm looking forward to that debate, you know, whereas my blood pressure is going to be very high for Trump versus Biden. I think Kamala versus Mike Pence is going to be, yeah, that's going to be a, a debate where I'm going to have a drink and enjoy myself. There you go. We'll get the bingo cards ready. Hey, Sean, thanks a lot, man. Appreciate you. All right. Thanks. Have a good one, bro. All right. So great analysis there, as always, from, from Sean. Jordan, what are you looking for in these debates uh, that we're going to have between Donald Trump and uh Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and Mike Pence. Well, I think Sean basically covered it. You know, I'm hoping that Joe Biden, one, can prove that he can stand up to Donald Trump, whatever Donald Trump throws at him. Um, Joe Biden can prove that he's not like this super old guy that can't keep up with, you know, the current president's, president's antics. I hope he can, you know, calmly and, you know, you know, and resoundly essentially win each and every debate and um, showcase that he is the 
direct opposite of the current president and the president that America needs. And at the same time, you know, I'm ready for Kamala Harris to throw as many punches as possible. Uh, I would, I'm ready for that uh, vice presidential debate. Um, I think a lot of people were worried about, I know, well, not necessarily worried. Let me take that back. I think a lot of people were excited about the fact that we have a black woman vice president. And this debate essentially could, you know, could kind of solidify um, how impactful and how important it is to have a, a black woman vice presidential candidate where you have someone um, who's competent, who's intelligent, showcasing everything that's wrong with the current administration in a, a handed way um, that also can show to Americans that for whatever reason thought, you know, like, I may not like Trump, but I'm okay with Pence. Mm -hmm. Also show that like, you know what, Pence is also wrong too. Um, and if it's a black woman kind of leading that conversation, then um, I think we will, you know, be better off. So I'm excited to see that, um, that debate. Um, and yeah, like I said, Sean covered it. I had a whole bunch of things that I was going to say, but you know, yeah, Sean, Sean got it all. I imagine we're going to have a moment in this debate. It's going to be ugh, painful to watch and painful on the ears where oh. Donald Trump is going to be saying a lot of things and Joe Biden is going to be saying a lot of things at the same time and escalating his voice <laughs> and <laughs> Our poor moderator is going to be in there. Oh, yeah. Gentlemen, gentlemen, please. Gentlemen, gentlemen. And it's just going to be loud noises, loud noises. And I'm just going to sip my wine, maybe <laughs> chug it, and say, please, let's just get to November. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that's a, good, that's a good point. Moderators are so important to debates. And if they are terrible. Who's moderating this one? So, see, okay, so Chris Wallace, let's hope that he is tough and, and you know, maybe, I don't, do they mute? Have they ever considered muting mics? They mic? have not done a mute mic thing yet, but I think that would be that is something that moderators need to have the power of. But isn't that, isn't that a form of censorship? Ah, not if you keep going over time, you know, you got your 45 seconds and I gave you your extra minute to get, to get your point as soon as you reach the two minute mark after you had 45 seconds initially mute <laughs> or after the after the the third gentleman you know. man that's not an easy sell <laughs> but i i think a lot of people would be happy if we could get something like that for sure yeah you know just to calm them down but um you know i had a friend who said uh she had tuned out of uh politics and she wanted to know like the best way to get back into like the swing of things because um, mm -hmm. she, after the vice presidential nomination, she just, you know, the weeks after, you know, she just didn't really like check on politics. Um, but uh, I told her that a good way to get back into it is to watch the debate essentially. And um, so if you are like her and you're trying to like, well, let me get back into the swing of the, the election since we are ramping up, um, Definitely tune into the debates. Um, the first debate is uh, September 29th um, at uh, 9 
uh, Eastern. Um, and it will end at 10.30 Eastern. And it will be on all um, cable platforms. Uh, the next two presidential debates are October 15th and October 22nd at the same time. And the vice presidential debate um, will be October 7th at 9 p.m. I'll be having my wine on that day. So, uh, the, and the debates, again, will be on all major TV networks. Um, but if you don't have cable and you're trying to save money, uh, C-SPAN um, will be streaming the debates from YouTube and on their website. And Twitter, actually, will also be streaming the um, debate, too. So tune in if you can. And um, yeah, stay informed. That's the key. That's the key. Mm -hmm. What we say, stay woke, get out and vote. That's the key, man. Well, thanks a lot, everybody, for tuning in to this uh, latest episode of Young, Black, and Political. You can uh, hit us up on Instagram at YNGBLKPolitical. Uh, we have lots of good content there to keep you informed, keep you educated, um, and uh, try to get you galvanized for this pivotal season. We are getting very close, guys. Very close. Like, days. Fucking like days away from the election. Less than 40. Okay. Yes. We're getting there. If you have, get your voting plans ready. Get your voting plan ready. Uh, you can find information about how to get a sample ballot on our Instagram page um, and lots of other handy resources um, to make sure that you're ready um, and educated. Remember, it's more than just president. It's down the ballot for your, your city, your state. Illinois, we got some big things to decide when it comes to taxes. Uh, so you don't want to ignore that stuff. So, um, yeah. Thing informed everybody, and uh, until next time, catch you later. You're supposed to say, "Stay black, stay woke, get out and vote." Like, what <laughs> well, let, me, let me stay black, stay woke, get out and vote. There we go. That's there we go. <laughs> <laughs>